Voices are exotic Dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices In your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. This episode is entitled Deuteronomy, and in it, we're going to discuss morality. Here, I will lay out the foundation of an evidence-based moral system from which we will then build upon in the second half of this series called Book 2, the New Testament. Today, we will be looking to answer the following big questions. How should we live our lives? How does one live a moral life? And what is morality? First and foremost, in order to address these big questions, we have to clearly define what morality is and how we can come to know morality. We also need to describe the process by which you can navigate moral situations and answer moral questions. Finally, we need to be able to utilize this moral system in our daily lives. All aspects of this moral system will be based on evidence as everything sensible must be, and will provide us with a simple methodology to ensure that our moral conclusions are correct. This system will also help us to further conceptualize morality. Please note that I won't be answering any specific moral questions, nor will I be setting any moral parameters at this time. I won't be prescribing any morality to you just describing the mechanics used to provide moral answers and the goal and basic concepts of morality. Therefore, this episode will be descriptive in nature. Once you understand the foundational elements of a moral system based in evidence, science, and humanity, then we can begin to answer all your specific moral questions and set moral parameters in book two. There, I will give you a prescriptive account of morality based on the best evidence that we have to date. And there, we will discover the moral truths that have been so hard fought throughout human history. But before we can prescribe any moral answers, first, we must understand what morality is, how it is evidenced, and its general framework. So let's answer the question, what is morality? Morality is a method for living our lives in accordance with the evidence that directs us towards furthering the well-being of ourselves and of others whom we share our surroundings. This is a good starting point for sure, but there is a lot more information for us to cover to get a clearer picture. Before we start to conceptualize the basics of a just and valuable moral system, we need to get one thing perfectly clear. Whatever answer we provide, it will be based on humanity. Just like planetary science is based on planets, morality must be based on humanity. Unlike the sciences of physics, chemistry, and geology, the subject matter of morality is us. We need not look to the stars to answer how humans ought to behave or think or feel about one another, nor should we look underground. Answering moral questions will be a lot like answering questions of human psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics, physiology, neurology, and medicine. In order to find out moral truths, we first have to look at ourselves and each other. It should not be a surprise to you that 
every moral system ever conceived has something to do with how human beings should act, think, and feel towards one another. The moral system I promote will look to do the same, only we will rely solely on evidence to guide us towards moral truths and certainty. So it will be human beings that we will study. Human beings will answer the moral questions asked. Human beings will be the subjects of our moral experiments. Human beings will make up the data sets that we generate and query when we look to answer our moral questions. And finally, it will be human beings that interpret the data, analyze the facts, and compose the scientific theory of morality, just like every other field of scientific study. But unlike many of the other sciences, human beings are going to be looking directly at themselves, and we have to take a long and sober look. Let's start this process by laying the foundation from which we will build our moral system. The best way I've discovered to think about the most basic aspect of morality is to picture in your mind a straight, horizontal line with an arrow on each end. On the left, there is suffering, and on the right, there is flourishing. Think of both suffering and flourishing as absolutes, the worst of the worst and the best of the best, respectively. Now, place a dot somewhere on the line. That dot is you. Your goal is to move towards flourishing and away from suffering. There are many different actions that you can take to move yourself along this line. These actions can be considered objective. You have beliefs that also cause you to experience mental suffering and flourishing. These beliefs are subjective in nature. So we have objective actions and subjective beliefs. Both can move you along the line. And interestingly, both can affect each other. Your beliefs can affect how you act, and your actions can change your beliefs. So it is safe to say the following, that morality is both subjective and objective in nature, not just one or the other, and that your actions and beliefs interact with each other. They guide each other, they inform each other, and ultimately they work together to shape your experience both your objective and subjective experience. Let's reconsider that dot for a moment. That dot can be changed to be another person, a group of people, or even humanity as a whole. If you are trying to assess someone other than yourself, simply replace the dot with that person or group or all of humanity. All the decisions you make can be placed on this continuum and they can all be assessed by how they will move you, your loved ones, or humanity either towards suffering or flourishing. And we can determine which way the dot will move in a surprisingly simple way. The next element of an evidence-based moral system will help us to determine our movements along this line. To answer this, we need to build what I'm calling human data sets. As with any data set, a human data set contains data points. Each data point represents a fact. Each fact is either an objective fact or a subjective fact relating to human suffering or flourishing. Thanks to science and the scientific method, we've learned an abundance of objective and subjective facts regarding humanity. So science has already provided many human data points that we will need to collect into our human data sets. 
These human datasets can then be collected together into a human database. We can then query this human database to answer our moral questions. There are a few difficult ideas that we must come to terms with if we're going to create a science of morality like I'm suggesting. The first is that we need to do the hard work and collect data for our human data sets. The second is that we need to get comfortable considering the subjective human experience as factual. That is, we're going to have to learn how to bridge the gap between subjective and objective facts. It's this process that makes most people pause and complain. As I stated before, science has given us plenty of objective facts regarding morality. But if we are going to create a science of morality, we also need to consider the subjective human experience. One key concept to understand about building human data sets that include the subjective human experience is that once the human data set is compiled, those individual subjective answers become objective data points within the data set. That data set can then be queried to determine a probability. I'll elaborate on this further in just a moment. Now, let's discuss some objective moral facts. It's a matter of fact that it is worse to be dead than alive. It is a matter of fact that the killing of a person causes them suffering. It is a matter of fact. It is not just a moral intuition, and it is not just a subjective preference. Murder causes suffering. Suffering that can easily be quantified by collecting the facts of the murder. Perhaps a certain amount of blood was spilled, or a human being's head was hit a certain number of times with a hammer. These are examples of objective facts. Pints of blood or fractures to a human skull. These objective moral facts are definitive proof that a human has been suffering. Suffering so badly, in fact, that they died. It's important to note here that the moral facts that murder generates are fully independent of how the murderer feels about committing the murder. It doesn't matter what the murderer believes about morality. The only thing that matters are the moral facts. Did someone suffer? The moral facts above would indicate that someone in fact did, and that suffering is completely independent of the murderer's moral beliefs, preferences, or intuitions. More broadly, the moral facts are also independent of society's position on murder. The moral facts stand on their own merit. Now let's consider for a moment the act of starving someone. This is a form of torture one that, sadly, many parents do to their children. Torture of this kind generates objective moral facts we would compile into a human data set. But in the case of torture, where the victim survives, we would compile two human data sets, one of the objective moral facts, the medical, physiological, and neural data points collected by the numerous doctors that would tend to the victim, the second human data set, would be comprised of the victim's experience of being tortured and an account of their suffering. This second data set contains the subjective moral facts. The child's subjective experience of being starved by their parents would be invaluable data points in determining the immorality of such an act of torture. 
This would be a subjective human data set, likely collected by a psychologist, psychiatrist, or perhaps even a friend. However, the subjective human data set poses an interesting problem for most scientific thinkers. How can we utilize subjective accounts of an experience, which are traditionally the worst type of scientific data, and treat them as subjective moral facts in a human data set? Also, how do we convert this subjective data into objective data? Do we need to convert it for it to be valuable? To answer this, we need to consider the nature of our subjective experience and refer back to our definition of morality. Normally, in scientific theories, our subjective experience is pretty useless. Our personal accounts or beliefs of what exists and how things exist is largely irrelevant if we are, say, determining the nature of star formation or how an animal that was once something like a small deer changed over millions of years into a modern-day whale. But this is what makes a science of morality different than other sciences. Morality is based on human suffering and flourishing. So in this case, it is humanity itself that is being studied. One interesting fact about humanity is that they are vocal and can actually tell you how they feel. Humans have the ability to provide and account for their experience. And even though those accounts are subjective in nature, they offer an invaluable window into what humans perceive as suffering and flourishing. So individual human accounts of suffering and flourishing need to be introduced when we are gathering data to support the science of morality. This data is called subjective moral facts. If we compile these subjective moral facts into human data sets, then we can query those data to determine the probability that any one action will cause suffering or flourishing. It is in this way that subjective accounts can be transformed into objective facts. In order to convert a subjective human data set filled with subjective moral facts into objective data that we can then query, we need only to take one additional step. To this point, we've recorded the data, populated the human data set with the data, and added it to our human morality database. Once it resides in with all the other human data sets we've compiled relating to torture in this example, then we can start to think of those data as objective. It's no longer just one person's account of being tortured, it's many people's accounts. Subjective accounts that can now be queried to establish percentages and trends and other objective data points. By aggregating the data, it ceases to be one person's subjective account. It now gets compiled with all the other people's subjective accounts of torture to help us establish how likely humanity is to suffer when they are being tortured. When we aggregate data like this, we can now make claims based on percentages that human beings will suffer when they are tortured. Now we can query the data to assess the objective fact that, say, 99% of people that are tortured report suffering. In this way, the answers to our queries that the data is providing are objective facts, facts that have a certain probability of being true. So if we are to establish whether or not we should torture, based on this example, 
we could say, as a matter of fact, that torture is immoral 99% of the time, with 100% of our subjects providing objective moral evidence of suffering. But what about that 1%? Let's deal with that in detail in Book 2, but suffice to say for now that the 1% accounts for two things. Our error bar, something we should always expect in science, and that it's very likely that at least some percentage of people will not report suffering from torture. But that shouldn't cause us to throw our hands up in the air in defeat. We can still say that it is an objective fact that 99 out of 100 people asked reported that torture caused them to suffer. And as we now know, suffering is one of the parameters of immoral behavior. Human data sets can also be used to assess humanity's intuitions. By asking people specific moral questions and compiling their answers into human data sets, we can then query those data sets to answer questions about how moral or immoral are a group of people. We can also determine differences in moral norms and preferences between different cultures. Whole regions of people could be assessed in this way to determine how morally accepting they are of homosexuals, for instance, or any other morality-based question we'd like to answer. These types of data have two main uses. The first is to assess the current morality of any given region or group of people, something we are not currently doing with any rigor. The second is to further help us establish human rights. Again, something we aren't pursuing purposefully. What we are compiling currently that I would relate to the human data sets I'm proposing are a type of human data set that is completely descriptive in nature. This is the kind of data that we currently collect in pupils and humanities studies. Notice also that many of these studies fail to provide a moral conclusion or judgment. They simply report the results in percentages, similar to the subjective human data sets I'm proposing above, but without any definitive moral direction. I suspect this is because most people are cautious to condone or condemn any group of people, either past or present. This is because they are not utilizing the moral framework I have provided in this series. In other words, they have no evidence to support a moral conclusion. The human data sets that I'm proposing here would provide us with all the evidence we need to come to sound and valid moral conclusions. I'll cover this in detail in book two. Yet another use of human data sets is to establish a fact-based foundation for human rights. By utilizing both the objective moral facts and the subjective moral facts, collected from humanity regarding their rights, we can then start to build a case for the theory of human rights. This would be a scientific theory, and just like any scientific theory, a theory of human rights would need to be demonstrable, falsifiable, verifiable, and reproducible, and it would have to arm us with predictive capabilities. I'm going to talk about this in greater detail in book two of this series. But for now, know that the human data sets I'm advocating here will also be used to provide objective evidence to support a robust bundle of valuable human rights. The kinds of rights that 
would be best codified into our governmental documents and inscribed on our school cafeteria walls. Ultimately, the difference between the humanities ought not to be considered with hard and fast lines of distinction. Economics, medicine, culture, and all the other human-based systems, including morality, can be thought of as one giant human data set. We need only to relate them to each other with a science of morality. It's that science of morality that we are developing here and can utilize to carve a path forward through our economic, cultural, medical, and other human-based systems towards an outcome that promotes thriving. All we need to do first is to establish a science of morality. Hopefully, this series does just that. One final thought, the true nature of morality is that it is discovered, just like scientific theories, by collecting data and facts and constructing a theory that is supported by all the facts and is contradicted by none of them. And that's it. That's the most basic foundational moral system. I have given you the concept of what your goal is, the straight horizontal line, and a tool for accomplishing your goal of moving towards flourishing, which is building human data sets. By using those tools, we can set some parameters, quick and easy checks to make sure that you are on the right path when you decide how to act in the world. That is a theory of human rights. We know for a fact that there are ways to reliably create human suffering. We also know for a fact that there are reliable ways to make humans flourish. By constructing human data sets based on facts, both objective moral facts and subjective moral facts, we can reliably predict how our actions will affect ourselves and those around us. Perhaps you feel a little let down because I have not yet provided you with a catchy phrase like I did in some of the earlier episodes of this series. I do have a saying, but first, I want to give you a little context. Many people, when asked about morality, say that they follow the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. While this may be a decent starting point, it has real limitations and ultimately doesn't give us enough moral direction to be worthwhile. In other words, the golden rule is hugely overrated. Instead, I encourage you to consider the following modification. Do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Notice the change in focus here. No longer is the rule self-centered. No longer are you the arbiter of what should happen to others on your behalf. With this simple modification, immediately you are encouraged to engage with those around you. You are encouraged to ask them how they would like you to treat them. This rule opens up lines of communication and starts to build a human data set that consists of everyone, not just you. Call this rule the shilling standard, if you like. A bit egocentric of me to suggest, perhaps, but it's as good a name as any. The real value in the rule is applying it to those you encounter. Feel free to ask those around you what it is that you can do for them. How do they want to be treated? How does the change you're proposing affect them, etc.? Instead of assuming you know what is best for others, find out the real answer. Build a human data set. 
In the next episode, we will go over a conclusion to this first part of the Bible 5.0 before moving on to Book 2. Thank you, and this has been Ear Seduction. <laughs>